So welcome, everybody, to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am your host, John Robb. I am not joined here by my co-host, Jeff Ayers. He is out tonight. We are going to have to shame him for that later when we get him on. Uh, but we have a really great show for you today. We are going to be speaking with a cozy author here, Deborah Goldstein. She's going to be talking about her book, Two Bites Too Many, which is the second in her Sarah Blair mystery series. It comes out September 24th from our great publisher, Kensington Books, because all of our shows here are brought to you by Kensington Books. So make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on uh, what they got going on. So without any further ado, Deborah, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Well, John, I'm delighted to be here, and thank you. Uh-uh. So again, Two Bites Too Many is the latest uh, in your Sarah Blair series. It's the second book. The first one was One Taste Too Many. It came out in January of this year. And nine months later, you have book two, and that's what cozies do. They like to run kind of quick together because cozy mystery readers don't like to wait for their books. So give us a little bit about Two Bites Too Many. Well, let me start back a little bit, if I can, just to give you an idea who the character is, Sarah Blair. Um, When I came out in January, uh, just to give you a quick rundown, I wanted to write a cozy, but I had a little problem with it, um, and that was that most cozies are in a confined space. Mine is in a small town called Wheaton, Alabama. Um, Most cozies deal with people who are good in crafts or like to cook. I personally don't like either of those things or I'm not very good at them. So I thought about it, John, and I decided I would create a character like me. And I figured there had to be other people out there in the world who are absolutely petrified of their kitchen. So for culinary challenge Sarah Blair, there's only one thing scarier than cooking and from scratch, and that's murder. She was married at 18, she was divorced by 28, and the only thing she got out of the marriage was a feisty Siamese cat, Rara. Um, she is not very domesticated, um, but she does have a twin sister, Emily, who is an ambitious chef and determined to take her culinary ambitions to the top in terms of restaurants and such. Now, Sarah knew starting over would be messy, but things in the first book, One Taste Too Many, fell apart completely when Sarah's ex, the rat, dropped dead, seemingly poisoned by her twin's award-winning rhubarb crisp. So Sarah had to figure out the right recipe to crack that case. And, you know, it was hard because she's a gal whose idea of good china is floral paper plates. Two Bites Too Many, um, as you indicated, is the second book, and it just um, is about to come out, and I'm doing too many ums here, but Two Bites Too Many is a little bit different. In this one, Sarah is finally, things are looking up for her. She's gotten through that divorce. She's settled into a cozy carriage house with her Siamese cat, Rara, and she somehow managed to hang on to a law firm receptionist job, and if we could say that befriending flea-bitten strays at the local animal shelter counts, she has a thriving social life. But she has also, for once, got it more together than her enterprising twin, Emily. Um, But Emily's been trying to open a restaurant of her own, but the bank has refused to give her a loan. Now, when the president of the town bank is murdered after icing Emily's business plans, all eyes are on the one person who left the scene with blood on her hands, the twins' sharp-tongued mother, Maybell. And that's the premise of Two Bites, because she's got to get her mom off the hook this time, but Sarah is trying to do it, and it's not very easy, especially if she has to get anywhere near her kitchen. 
<laughs> I do like that kind of, because you're right. A lot of cozies are definitely, there's recipes involved and many different things. I mean, there's quilting. There's a lot of, you know, cutesy little, um, I guess you want to say, occupations that are involved, and they're always kind of like amateur sleuths. So I like the pull because, you know, you know, there always has to kind of be a pull for an amateur sleuth to kind of get involved into this. So when did you decide that, because you're not, you've written mysteries before, so this is not nothing new to you, this kind of style of book. But in a cozy mystery, how much different is it from some of the other stuff that you've written? Well, my first book was an academic mystery, Maze in Blue, and that was a traditional mystery and it won an Ippy Award. Uh, but that publisher went out of business. So that took care of number one. Um, the book is still around, though. It's, it, it's, it is available. The second book, Should Have Played Poker, was a Carrie Martin and the Mahjong Players mystery. It was going to be a series, but it became a standalone when the publisher decided no longer to have mysteries. Both of them have been bought later for mass market by Harlequin Worldwide. But the um, thing was, at that point, everybody kept telling me, write something different. And I really like a cozy. Uh, John, as you and I have talked before, you know, for all my years as a litigator and a judge, cozy mysteries were what I liked to read as I traveled around the country and as I was on planes and things like that. They were relaxing. You can figure out the mystery. There's a whodunit, and if it's written well, they're fun. And that's really uh, where I went with it. And I did want to add one thing. You talked about recipes. I I did decide I had to put some in because, like Kenzie said, that's in there. So I have recipes. I have Jello in a can. I have spinach pie made with Stouffer's souffle. Um, I have wine spritzers in the new book, but that's made with you know pre-made ingredients too. Anything from scratch. Sarah gets nervous. (laughs) Well. You know, and, and, I, and I love cozies. I mean, Murder, She Wrote is probably one of my favorite series of all sure. time, and I love Sherlock Holmes. I always love the whodunits. You know, Death on the Nile with Peter Ustoff is a great movie. I love watching all the pros. So, yeah, cozies are one of those things that you pick up, you can just kind of get through, you can kind of read, but the mystery still has to be very intricate and still solvable for the reader. So when you're kind of going through and you're kind of, you know, laying out the clues, how many times do you kind of have to go back and kind of make sure, okay, is that clue strong enough? Is it too strong? And those kinds of, you know, and those little things. Well, you have to do that all the way through. I think that plotting is really important. Um, when I wrote the first book, I started writing it. I had an idea in mind. And then I got through it and I said, hmm, this isn't very interesting. It, you know, I didn't like it. And then I realized I had the wrong murderer. I had the clues there, but I had aimed and put it to the wrong person. I threw out half the book, rewrote One Taste Too Many, wrote a whole new ending, um, and the book worked. In fact, Women's World picked it as a book of the week for as, as a cozy um, right. when it first came out. Two Bites Too Many, I again knew that I had to have a tight plot. But, as you say, you have to have the clues there. It's the only way to be fair to the reader. If I just did, announced it at the end of this thing and came up with my own wonderful um, ending, it wouldn't be fair. The readers wouldn't enjoy it. It would be Murder by Death. Do you remember that play by Neil Simon? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why Truma Capote brought all the detectives there is because he was pissed at how they kind of wrote their books. Uh, if you want to say, and he kind of says it at the very end, you know, he's like, oh, bringing in characters that never existed before, and blah, 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 making it impossible for the... So, 
that's the I that's a pissed off cozy reader is Truman Capote and Murder by Death. And if you people have not seen that play, uh, it's a it's it's fabulous. I, I, it's it's wonderful, it, it, and, it's, and it's, it's kind of a satire against pissed off readers to detectives. <laughs> well, that was the last thing I wanted. And you know, when Kensington read the first one, they offered me a contract for three books, and I think uh, and we're about to have more in the series, so they'll be coming oh, out for good. the next few years. I'm very excited. Yeah, that's good. And why, like, the nine months? I mean, why, why did they want to kind of do it that fast? So are you going to be, like, on a nine-month run all the no, time? No, I think I'm going to be on a year. I think for the next two, three years you'll be seeing a book. I don't know, really. I think they really liked how the first book was doing, and they thought readers would like to see the second. Okay. So you don't really have the plan for, like, publication date number three, not like maybe next summer or something? Oh, that that's effect? September of 2020. That much I know. Oh, okay. So, they are, okay. so then book three will be out. Well, man, so we've got to wait a whole year for, for the third one to come out. Yeah. But, you got, but, but that gives you time to read one and two. Is it three strikes too many? No, it's going to be three huh. treats too many. Three trees too many. Uh, I, yeah. And the one thing that's always, you know, important, too, is you've got to talk about the cat because animals and cozies are, just go together. So how was it having to kind of make, of course, you know, the cat a big character within the stories? I thought it was going to be important. As you said, there's not a cozy without a cat on the cover. And I started to do this. And I'm going to be honest, I was not the biggest cat person we've always had dogs but i interviewed people i got to know cats and i started putting it together and they were fascinating so when i went to do rara um i started rara which is the name of the cat as having belonged to the rat which is her ex-husband's um, mother and she ended up with um, sarah blair ends up with the cat because the husband's allergic to everything, and when his mother passes away, as I said, the only thing she got out of the marriage was the cat. So it was very important to me that the cat be realistic, that the cat behave like the cat would do, because I hate when I read a cozy or something and the cat just sits there, or the cat just is on your foot and never moves. Uh, right. cats have, I, I needed to make it realistic. And I also felt that if I was going to use an animal, it had to be an integral part of the story. And Ra-Ra is an integral part of the series. In Two Bites Too Many, I've added a puppy dog. And if one looks at the cover, both Ra-Ra and Fluffy the dog are on it together. But Ra-Ra is always going to be the alpha cat. Uh, Fluffy just kind of follows along. Well, I mean, and I might make some dog lovers upset, but cats are pretty, are pretty damn smart. Um, yes. You know, and I think they're almost a little bit more, put it this way, they're more intelligent than a dog because, like they say, you know, dogs have owners, you know, pets have servants. <laughs> well, so, I'm going to stick to defending both of them, John. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's true. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and those, and those are always great characters to kind of, you know, get into cozies and, and get the mystery. So how, you know, when, when you, like you said, on the first one you kind of threw out half, and then you kind of had to bring it back into the right frame. What was your difficulties in writing uh, Two Bites Too Many? Did you have any? In, in Two Bites Too Many, the biggest difficulty is that you have characters. You're in this small town. And like when we were, you were mentioning Murder, She Wrote, you've got to be careful because you, you keep introducing the town. 
and the, uh, more characters, but you don't want to overpopulate the town. At the same time, you have to be careful that you're not going to kill the whole town. That you know, um, because there's True. only so many bodies to kill in a small right. town. But, now, have and you that thought was, about? Have you thought about that in the future, like moving things a little outside so it's not always in the same place? What I did in Two Bites Too Many is I actually have moved it a little bit. What I have done in Two Bites Too Many is um, she, she's going back and forth to Birmingham. I put Whedon as being 15 minutes out of Birmingham. I really modeled it after a city that's about an hour out of Birmingham. And, but I'm, I did it so that the mother, Maybell, leave, lives in Birmingham, so there's a reason to go back and forth. And I end up having the twin sister working at a restaurant in Birmingham at one point. And Sarah ends up helping to, you know, be a server and things so that right. I can bring in both big city and little city and therefore introduce more characters. Um, that was my whole idea is to always keep it not overpopulated but with enough of an interest for the reader. You know, and I've been to Alabama. I've, all, I've been to Mobile. I've driven through Birmingham. Uh, one of my best friends, Doug Lyle, uh, is from Alabama. So that's a very, very um, specific – they have a very specific culture uh, in Alabama and in the South. And so how did you – how were you able to kind of bring that through to the reader so they kind of – for people who never maybe been there, maybe only heard about it but don't really understand – you know, the culture, because a lot of people don't even know that Mardi Gras started in Mobile. New Orleans might have the biggest party, but it started, but it started in Mobile. started in Mobile. <laughs> okay, let me back up a little. I'm a, I'm a Yankee, at, you know, from, by birth, uh, mm-hmm. though I've been in the South for many a year now. Uh, the South has a warm, engaging um, uh, uh, feeling. The, they will talk to you, and even if they are saying something to your face they'll be saying bless your heart yeah but, um, but they will not be inhospitable and that was one of the things I was trying to show that everybody in a small town knows everybody um, now in in some ways that's the same in other small towns I grew uh, you know part of my life I grew up in a small town and you would get on the bicycle you could ride the five miles square but here people actually know each other in the south um, the concept was always you left the door unlocked. Well, we do yeah. lock the doors now. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can contrast it. I, I, where your office is, where, where the suspense um, all is on Agora Road, you know, you're yeah. in a much more complex area. Um, I have family who lives down the street from you practically. Uh. And so it's a whole different world. The streets are different. The houses yeah. are different. Here you have the wraparound porches. Oh, you yeah, have no. columns. You yeah, have, have basements here. There's no basements in California. No, it's everything's on the slab thing. Um, yeah. Here, here we would have basins. We have attics too, which can right. be mysterious, though mine aren't yet. And we have houses that are being taken over and made into apartments, taken over and made into restaurants, yep. because they're these gorgeous um, features. If you think Forrest Gump, the house that the mother lived in, those are not uncommon in Alabama. No. Nor is oh, the White all- Steeple Church or things like that. Right. I mean, where I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, I mean, you see it in areas where it was those older, big homes that were one person's homes that are now four apartments. They've just kind of, you know, split them up and they put them into four apartments. Um, Typically, they're in not great areas. I'm not going to lie. They're not in the greatest areas of Columbus. I mean, that's uh, so like it used to be like a really ritzy part. And now it's kind of more of a depressed part uh, where these things are. But, you know, for 
you know, again, for people who don't really travel around and kind of understand that, uh, is making, you know, how, how important is it for you to make sure that you make the setting its own character? I, oh, it was very important because in Alabama, for example, we have white alabaster marble. The court, the courthouses and some of the old libraries are made of that marble. You're not going to see that in other places. The setting influences how people behave. The setting influences the fact that they'll be outdoors and sitting in the town square. You're not going to have um, a, you know, a big complex metropolitan area. When you think of California, you think of six to eight lanes of highway. Here there you're going to have a two-lane road. Um, and when she goes back and forth even to Birmingham, she's basically on a one lane. She can pull off and be at the lake. That's the kind of more casual living style. Yeah. But the setting becomes important because you end up utilizing it as, at times as character for the story. In the first book, because I, I believe in putting social issues in but not beating you over the head, um, in one issue I was dealing with economic development, just the kind of thing you're saying. How do we zone? How do we, you know, regentify an area? In another, the second book, I am dealing with the banking. I am dealing with the fact that in a small town, everybody knows each other. Everybody comes in and out the back door of the bank. But then you might have somebody who wants to bring in a a, a twist, perhaps, and, and that becomes important. So I do think that that, you make it fun, but the setting becomes the um, atmosphere. For example, in the bank, you, I describe what it used to look like out the window before they built a big building next to the bank. Mm. And you can just see it. You can see how the people evolved from that setting. Yeah, I mean, you're talking when, you, again, if you just want to take, you know, Cabot Cove and Murder, She Wrote, I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, that's where you got, like, the first national bank names, which you don't even see anymore. You know, everything is Chase or Bank of America or Wells Fargo. It's not like, you know, first national bank, you know, of Cabot Cove uh, where it's local. And the mortgage, you know, they own 70% of the mortgages that are in the town. So, I mean, it's, a, it's not just a very vital part of the town. I mean, it's like it, it finances you know, the town. I mean, that's where people have to go to do everything uh, if they want money or anything else, and that's then those, those things are always there. Uh, the one thing, you know, that I don't see a lot of in cozies, and I always wondered why, because they're, they're big in small towns, and they're in towns here like Moose Lodges and Elk Lodges and things of those nature. Why do you think that they kind of stay, like you don't see a lot of those in, in cozy mysteries? I think it's probably part of the writing style. Uh, I have a theory why. But I'll, well, I'll listen to it. I was going to say, you see more of the garden clubs. You see more of the things because a lot of your protagonists, amateur sleuths, are female. And they're not going to belong to those organizations as much as they're going to belong to some other civic organizations that are more, um, more countrified, more ladylike at the time. Right. That's kind you know? of where I was going, where I think that you don't see a lot of them because, and I think cozies are written more for women than they are for men. I think it's actually, uh, no, I think men, there, there is an audience I think men like both. the harder grit, maybe. That's maybe they like the more Mickey Spillane kind of detectives where they're like, who done it? But, um, yeah, I think that you're right. I think that because more cozies are written by women and maybe for women, that you don't see a lot of the elks and the moose lodges and those kinds of things. But um, I, I guess I wish that it would be more of those types of settings because they are so much fun. Uh, 
when you well, kind of I go into that? Well, I think they're starting to, John. I yeah, think what you're going to have, well, I think you're going to have some evolution because let's look back yeah. at women's things. I can talk to you about my in my legal career where at times I was the only woman and there were organizations back when I, you know, just don't, until a few years ago that didn't accept women in their ranks. Uh, yeah, that's true. And Or they made some of the groups you're talking about, you had to belong to the auxiliary if you were yeah, a woman. that's right, the auxiliary. That's yeah. a word you don't hear any much more, do you? Right, but I use a church auxiliary in one of yeah. these, you know, in, in two bites. And that's only today, I would say in the last 15 years or so, women are like rocking around to most of the rotary clubs. Originally, yeah, they didn't the take rotary women. Rotary clubs, yeah. It is. It, you know, and, and I think it's sad that I think you see a lot of those clubs going away. I think when you know, the generations get younger, they don't do those things. And there's so much character in those, in those things. My grandmother was you know, one of the founding members of the Eastern Star in New Jersey, along with my mm-hmm. grandfather as far as the German club in New Jersey. Um, and those just don't, they just don't seem to be around as much. I just don't think that younger people really care, I guess. Well, first of all, they don't care unless they have phones and they don't like the social actually interact unless it's electronic maybe that has something to do with it <laughs> well i also think that you're going to see more in the cozies because now there are avenues that they can join and, and also the generation of different things we, we we all did clubs but we are spread more thinly the millennials are in a different world and the that's cozies right. are going to have to evolve a little bit yeah um, i think mine are a little bit on the edge of your side because i think i am more into what's going on in the cities today. Yeah. I think the ones that kind of gear a little more millennial, I would say, are maybe the ones that have a little bit of supernatural element. They try to bring some of that stuff in. So that's maybe a little bit more forward thinking because then they can kind of do what they kind of want uh, when they do those things. And there's a couple of those out there, and I think they do pretty well. And I think, you know, when you were talking about the reading population, yes, there are more females, but there are a lot of men who enjoy the cozy mysteries. That's true, and but you know what? They're not going to admit it to you. No, but <laughs> I will because right. I really don't care. I think they're fabulous, and I love them. Um, but I, but I think that there's some, and I you know I've I've, I've talked you know Lisa I've talked with Lisa Gardner and Karen Slaughter in this in mm-hmm. depth, and they think that they have a lot more male readers than actually admit to um, because. Quite frankly, I don't know why. I mean, men have this complex of picking up like a thriller with a woman's name on it. It's like that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my entire life. And, and yet, and yet, look at the cozy. Um, well, people will buy it. Miranda James is is a, a male. That's Dean. Yeah, and we just know. interviewed Miranda for a powerful truth. But you see what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, he's a male. But I don't yeah. know how many people would know that if they didn't, like, hear an interview or actually look it up or whatnot. They just see the name, oh, Miranda. Uh, that sounds like a female name. Yeah. It's but kind of interesting. Think- and, and, and I think it's also we're evolving. It used to be, I mean, I could have used my initials when I started writing, True. Um, but I didn't because I don't think we're afraid of being a female writer anymore. I think we're we're very proud in the mystery world, and I think I, I'm, um, I'm chair of the Sisters in Crime Monitoring Project nationally, and it's been fun to watch the evolution for the oh, last cool. 30 years of yeah. the coverage that female writers are getting. Yeah, I think it's fabulous. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of room for everybody. There's room for everybody. There's there's enough readers out there that everybody can, you know, do well uh, no matter what. Um, so that's an exciting thing. I, I think that there's a lot of books out there that people should avoid. I mean, there's a lot of self-published <laughs> stuff that's just not very good, let's face it. I mean, it's really, really bad. 
Um, I'll put so a plug in. Kensington say, books are good. <laughs> Kensington books, yeah. Well, that, and that's and that was going to be kind of my point. Is I tell people when you go on Amazon and you're going to buy a book and you're not really sure, if, just scroll down a little bit and see who the publisher is, and then take that publisher name and Google it and see if it's just not the author's name in an anagram that he's self-publishing it, but making it seem like it's like a publisher. I said, you know, look them up and see what else they've done and see if they're more reputable because. If, they're, if they are like a Kensington, you know they've been through a process. I mean, you had a process, writing mm-hmm. and editing and back and forth and the whole nine yards. I mean, it's a lot to make sure that your book is tight, and I just don't think that you see a lot of that today, and I think that that's sad. And I think, cause, and I think it's sad that people are accepting it as, 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 as that way too. That's what's really sad. Yes, and I think, but I, I, working with Kensington, I have been thrilled because they, they oh, are great. very good to work with. But they also let me get into areas that, yeah. as I said, were a little edgier. I bring in the city council. I bring in, you know, economic development. I bring in um, business worlds. I, I bring in the animals and rescues and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm bringing in all different issues, and they're not shying away from any of them. And some of these are issues that you wouldn't necessarily – think of as being only cozy but they fit because i'm not pounding you over the head with them that's what ha- is happening in these kind of cities now what is the biggest thrill for you to get back to that computer and start writing the next book biggest thrill is knowing that um, a reader will enjoy it and making it fun john for me this is my second childhood you know i i i, I you know uh, the story of why I walk, walked away from my lifetime appointment, don't you? Or would you um, like maybe. If well, tell everybody. If okay. I if I remember, I, I'll probably remember when you start telling it. But tell everybody anyway. Well, I was on the bench for several several years, and I had a lifetime appointment. My first book came out, and there was some PR. Judge Wright's book. I had sold my second book, which is that other one that was orphaned, and it hadn't come out. It wasn't coming out for another, at, at that time, for um, several months. I'm in the court, and so picture me in my black robe, sitting on the uh, bench, looking out, and I had the lawyers well-trained. At the end of a hearing, I would go, is there anything further? The lawyer would answer, no, Your Honor, and I'd do a standard closing. On this particular day, I asked, is there anything further? The lawyer did exactly what he was supposed to do, but before I could get the standard closing on, the client said, Your Honor, yes, there is. And I looked to the lawyer, and the lawyer put his hands up to the sky. Um, Knowing the lawyer, I knew he'd lost control of this client. So I very calmly looked at the client, and I said, yes, sir, what is it? And he said, Your Honor, I just want you to know one thing. No matter how you rule, I'm going to buy your book. (laughs) I I, I do not remember that. I'm and so John, sorry. I'm sure he, um, I'm sure he didn't buy it because I ruled against him. But I went home that night and I said to my husband, "Let's run the numbers. I have two choices here. I can stay on this bench for my life, or and I'd gotten on it very early. I, the average age was 58, and I was just getting, um, I, I was on it 36. So you can picture that wow, I'd, I'd already had a career, and yeah. so I said to my husband, "Let's run the numbers. Last kids getting out of school type thing." If the numbers work, I'd like to follow my passion. And we figured it would work. I came in the next day and I said, guys, I'm going to finish out my docket. I figure it's going to take six, seven months. No more cases assigned to me. I will clean up my docket and then I will leave. And they looked at me thinking I was ill. And they go, what are you going to do? (laughs) 
And I said, I'm going to be so happy and so busy, I, I will have a second career. If I can stay healthy 20, 30 years, I will truly have another career. And they looked at me because the two to retire before me were 88 and 86. And You are not going down that path. And I'm not there yet, and I don't plan to be for a long time. I still, have, I still have time, a lot of time to have this career. But therefore, I'm hobnobbing, shall we say, with the people I read. I am able to write the kind of book I want to write, Two Bites Too Many, um, is a book that is meant to be a beach read, an airplane read, the, that book you have on your night table, or the book you read in the bathtub. It's meant to be fun. And that's what my yeah. series is, because yeah, I enjoy fun. it. Yeah. So where's the best place for everyone to kind of find out about your social media, website, all that fun stuff? Well, the, my biggest place is be my website, which is um, com. The other places they can find me, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, uh, facebook.com, Deborah H. Goldstein, author. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Deborah H. Goldstein. You can find me at Instagram, and you'll probably see the new, we have a new grandbaby, two months old. Uh, that's on there. Deborah. I have one that's two years and three months old. Four months. Ah, you've got us beat. Yeah. <laughs> this one's, uh, yeah, I'm on BookBub. That's a good place to find my uh, things. And the books are in, um, Barnes & Noble has them, Amazon has them, almost every, you know, any of the Kensington places have them. Um, right. they, and they've brought out, One Taste Too Many came out in um, mass paperback, audio, ebook, and if, big big print if you have trouble reading they can you know get that too and i believe that i know that um two bites is out and will be out in mass market ebook and audio i don't know if it's going to go the other way too but i assume it will hey so however you really want to get it you're saying there. you can get it <laughs> and i love to hear from fans or from people even asking questions you know i'm always available to talk to groups in fact i'll be out in your part of the world in november for Kensington Cozy Con. You're oh, really? Do... That's right. They mentioned something about that when we talked to them at Thriller Fest, Larissa and Michelle. Where, yeah. um, where is it again? That one is going to be um, in L.A., and it's going to be in um, San Diego. Okay, so the L.A. one, maybe I'll have to ask Larissa and Michelle. Maybe they can send us an invite, and we can head down there and say, uh, say hi to people. Yeah, and this weekend, because uh, coming weekend, we'll be doing the same kind of thing in Columbus, Ohio. Wow, my neck of the woods. Your neck of the woods and my old uh, stomping ground. I'll just tell you what, and I, and, I, and I don't care if I piss off Ohio people, I was smart to get out of that damn state and that city. Woo. <laughs> oh, California was so much better, I'm just saying. And, I've had a lot of, and I see a lot of people from Ohio, and they all say the same thing. Yeah, we were all smart to get out when we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, having, but now having gone Columbus, to Michigan, just, I have no comment on this. <laughs> what would you say? Having gone to Michigan, I'm not going to make a comment on this. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Do you know who I email once a week and say no. hello to? No. Coach Harbaugh. Oh, okay. I'm a huge Michigan fan. Well, then... I cried when John Beeline went to the Cavs. I go, no, he's the best coach we've had since Steve Fisher. Why did he leave? And... um. 
Yeah, you know, and so have... I always email I always, during the football season. I always email Jim, and I always you know say congratulations or this and that. We and this and that, and I've done that for the last uh, couple years because my first Ohio State Michigan game was 1985. Harbaugh guaranteed the win against uh, Ohio State when they won 26-24 in Ohio Stadium. Happiest moment of my life, seeing all those Ohio State fans whining and crying and going home. Loved <laughs> it. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that was great. Well, well, the reason I laugh is I'm, I've been in a mixed marriage myself. Um, I'm still a Michigan fan, but I'm married uh-huh. to an Alabama fan. Nick Saban is God to him. <laughs> yeah, and I could see that. I mean, I can see that. But, I'll, you know, I, 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 can, I can see that. Nick Saban done well. But, just you know, Nick Saban did not have a fun day in 1997 when he had to play against Charles Woodson. Um, and Woodson had probably the most incredible interception anybody will ever have in their lifetime. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, YouTube that game, and you'll see that interception, and you tell me if that's not the greatest interception anyone will ever see in the history of their life. Well, I, I can almost guarantee you, though I haven't worked in the football completely yet, I yeah. bet you I can't write a book set in Alabama without writing in the rivalries between Alabama and Auburn. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, that's the and iron ball. I'm, I'm going to probably have to throw some Michigan and such in there. So. Well, if you ever need any inside information that I'm telling you, just email D.P. Lyle and ask him some questions because he's the biggest Alabama fan I know. In fact, when I sat there and I texted him on Saturday and I was like, you know, mm-hmm. Alabama, you know, you know, didn't play very well from the start, but it looks like Auburn's gonna, is in a dogfight with Oregon. His response back, sorry, people, but his response back to me and the whole text that I wrote down, he said, Fuck Auburn. That's all he said. <laughs> he didn't say anything else. <laughs> and now we're not going to use words like that in my kind of books. Can't do that in a no, college. No, you're thing. not. But I, was, I thought that was the funniest thing because I'm texting this whole thing about college football, and that's the only two words he texted. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. So, yeah, so it's a great time. But, Deborah, hey, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute thrill to talk with you. Uh, wish you nothing but the best. Well, thank and, you. Um, thank you for having me tonight, John. Yeah, and we will uh, be excited uh, September 24th. Again, the book is called Two Bites Too Mary, Two Bites Too Many, uh, the second in the Sarah Blair series. So make sure you check it out, everybody buy books, uh, and we will talk to you again. I hope so. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.